All right, friends. Well, we've all had those moments in life where you have so much work to do, it's overwhelming. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's business. There's just so many things to do. But the latest Netflix series is just too good. And they keep ending each episode with a cliffhanger. So you're drawn into the next episode and the next. And then before you know it, entire hours have gone by. And then you're just hating yourself for all of the procrastination, right? All of the laziness, all of the neglect. Your doctor told you that your cholesterol is too high. And that your health is at risk. You know you need to eat better. You need to watch your diet. But it's the holidays. I mean, it is turkey time. Thanksgiving, Christmas is around the corner. So what can you do? You just indulge. Eat, drink, and be merry. You're neck deep in credit card debt. You know you need to cut back. You know you need to manage your money better. These are serious issues. But it's Black Friday. And your favorite stores are on sale for 40% off, right? And uh, just a note about that. Sociologists, they said that 40% is like the trigger number, right? I mean, if you're shopping and you see 20% off, it does nothing for you, right? There's no excitement. There's no thrill. 30% isn't even that big a deal. But you see 40, and if you were even thinking about buying that, green light. 50, you have to, right? So there's games, there's games these companies are playing. And Black Friday, that is the target number. You know you shouldn't, but you cannot help yourself. Some of you are so accustomed to online shopping, you know your credit card number by heart. You know your expiration date. You know that CVV. You you just fill it out automatically. We are those types of shoppers now. For some of you, you told yourself you wouldn't do it again. You had a serious talk with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You both agreed to stop, but one thing led to another, and you found yourself back in the place where you didn't want to be. I could go on and on with examples where we lack self-control in life. Whether it involves your words, your thoughts, your emotions, or your actions, we all struggle with self-control in some area in some form and shape in our lives. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 tells us, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What a powerful image. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And when the prophet Nehemiah heard that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and its gates were destroyed by fire. Nehemiah broke down and he wept and he mourned for days because he knew that meant God's people were in ruin. If the walls of Jerusalem came down, he knew his people were in ruin. Friends, without self-control, we too are in danger of ruin. Sin is constantly waging war against our souls. And what self-control does for the believer, what self-control does for us, is it serves as a barrier to protect us from sin. It serves as a barrier to protect us from temptation. And I want to tell you today that the Christian vision of self-control is uniquely able to help us. It is uniquely powerful to help us resist temptation. You see, 
Every religion, every culture, every philosophy knows the importance of self-control. It knows and acknowledges the importance of, of self-discipline. Okay? That's nothing new to humanity. But what sets self-control apart, or Christianity apart, is the way you get it. It's the way you experience self-control. It's the way that you live it out. Because for us, as sons and daughters of God, self-control is not an act of sheer willpower. It's not an act of just pure determination and self-discipline. The Bible tells us that self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. That means it's a gift from God. Self-control is a result of God's power and his work in you. Today, we are finishing our series on the fruit of the Spirit. I hope it's been an encouraging and a helpful and constructive journey for you. And our final fruit is the fruit of self-control. And we're going to look at three things in the message. First, the meaning of self-control. Second, the struggle for self-control. And thirdly, finally, the way to self-control. So the meaning, the struggle, and the way to self-control. Let's read the fruit of the Spirit one last time together from Galatians 5, starting from verse 16. May God bless the reading of his holy word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Amen. The New Testament Describe self-control in two ways. In two ways. Here in Galatians 5, the meaning of self-control is restraint over our emotions and desires. Restraint. Another way to think of it is inner strength, right? Inner resolve. It's the ability to resist temptation. It's the ability to deny the self, to say no to sin. Okay? So that's, that's what we see here. Restraint and inner strength. Elsewhere... In the New Testament, passages such as 2 Timothy 1.7, we see another facet of self-control. Paul writes this, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What a great verse. What a great promise that God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And there, self-control is described as prudence. Described as wisdom, as soundness of judgment. This kind of self-control comes from God directly to us as he gives us his word. As he reveals his truth to us to practice wisdom and live our lives. And that's why we see self-control as a gift from God. It's the knowledge, the truth, the wisdom, the light of God that we should know how to rightly live. And so we take these two things, self-restraint... 
and wisdom, prudence, judgment. Okay, you combine those things and you actually get a great definition of biblical self-control. To know as a Christian how you ought to live and then to have the inner strength to be able to live it out. That's self-control. To know how you ought to live and then by the power of God and the spirit of God, you are able to actually live it out. To actually put it in practice. Jerry Bridges, he defines self-control as the governing of one's desires. That's a really nice, tight definition. The governing of one's desires. George Bethune defines it as the healthy regulation of our desires and appetites. Tim Keller defines it as the ability to choose the important over the urgent. The ability to choose the important over the urgent. Those are all great definitions. Just pick one and and kind of run with that. Pick one and just uh, try to apply that and, and think about that. Now, when you go back and read the vice list, right, and that's always like an uncomfortable passage for me as a pastor to read because, you know, sexual immorality, sensuality, and all of that list is kind of like, oh, oh, don't say that. You know, those are awkward words to read. But if you read that vice list under the works of the flesh, you'll see that so many of them are connected to a lack of self-control, a lack of self-regulation, sexual immorality, impurity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Friends, the holidays are coming. That means anger is coming, right? You're going to be late to dinners. Don't get mad at your wife or your kids. Your parents are going to be extra demanding of you. Fits of anger, that's real Self-control, guys, love, joy, peace, patience. Drunkenness, envy, orgies, and things like these. All of these sins, all of these works of the flesh, they are passions in us that are running unchecked and ungoverned by the word and the spirit of God. What we as Christians need is self-control. The self-control of God to govern our thoughts, our emotions, our outward actions in the face of temptation, in the face of trial. When we talk about self-control, what we're actually talking about is discipleship. We're talking about the essence of discipleship because in the call to discipleship, what does Jesus command? For us to deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily and follow Christ. Self-denial, to be crucified with Jesus Christ. This is hard for us because our culture tries to move us in the opposite direction of discipleship. Our culture and our society wants to move us in the opposite direction of denying ourselves, the opposite direction of self-control. What our culture tells us to do is indulge the self, right? Indulge the self. You just give in to whatever desires and temptations you face in the moment. I mean, think of the the, the Sprite tagline. What does Sprite say? Obey your thirst. Obey your thirst. Whatever you want, whatever you desire, go get it. Culture says if you're angry, let it out. Don't be stressed. Don't hold it in. Don't pent it up. Just let it out. I had a a friend who, um, he and I in high school, we both quit cussing. Right? We we're like, hey, we're Christians. Let's, let's um, control the tongue. Let's use our words for God's glory, for building up and not for breaking down. A couple months later, he's like, you know, Mike, I'm going to cuss. And I was like, why? He's like, it feels good. Right? It just feels better than using the substitute words. You know, there, there's something about that. We just want to just spew out 
what's in our hearts. Spew out the thoughts in our minds. And we don't want to practice self-control. We don't want to filter those things. It's just refreshing to be able to just speak your mind and speak your heart. And let the words fall wherever they might lie. If you're tired, just take a nap. Go to sleep. Don't worry about it. If you're restless, take a vacation. Self-care. If you want it, get it. Get it. We tell ourselves we've earned it. We tell ourselves we deserve it. We tell ourselves we're entitled to these things. You only, leave, you only live once, so carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize the day. That's the message of our culture. The New York Post, they ran an article last year estimating the average American will spend around $500 over Black Friday weekend. I mean, the Black Friday pre-sales have already begun. Some of y'all already spent $500, right? $500 over Black Friday weekend, Cyber Monday. And I was like doing the math because I was like, man, our church, we're like 300 and 350 adults. If all of us spend the national average, because we are the average American consumers, I did 300 times 500, and I thought I was doing it wrong because the number came out to be $150,000. And I did it like eight times because I was like, no way. That's way too much. That has to be $15,000 or $1,500. But I kept punching it in. And if we are just the national average, we as a church body just might spend $150,000 this weekend buying stuff that maybe some of us need. You have broken appliances, right, or whatever it might be. And you're like, I need that. Broken computer or whatever it might be. And you're like, I need these things for work, for school. But most of us are going to spend our money on things that we don't need, but things we want. And that 40% ticket is the green light for us to indulge, right? It's the green light for us to justify. Now, I want to say this. Um, I am not here to put you on guilt trip, okay? That's not my MO if you know I'm preaching. I don't preach, you know, make you feel guilty or bad about ourselves. But I just couldn't believe this number, and I just thought, man, we just did a, a gospel generosity campaign for our community where we want to practice stewardship and care for widows, orphans, homeless family, homeless families, people who are underprivileged. And if we spend $150,000 on ourselves this weekend, we will not have even given a tenth for our community, for those who truly need it for those who are truly in destitution. And all I realized and all I thought was, man, we're, we're going to stand before God one day. We're going to stand before God one day and we're all going to give an account of how we lived our lives, how we stewarded over our time and our treasures and our talents. And I hope that God wouldn't look at us and say, I hope you enjoyed it, spending all of your resources on yourself. Now, I just want to say this. God knows we need things. And so he gives us all of our resources. And he doesn't say give it all away to the poor. That's, that, that's not the, the word of God and the command of God. He knows, hey, you need to pay back your school debts. A car payment, a house payment, buying food, buying clothes, caring for your kids. All of that is part of biblical stewardship. All of that is part of God's gift for you and I to flourish 
All of those are common grace gifts for us. So he knows we need these things. And so I'm not here to say, oh my gosh, how dare you not? How dare us not give $150,000 to the poor? No, that's, that's not the argument here. I just want to ask, are we living in indulgence? Do we justify our behavior because we follow the patterns of this world? Or are we going to be the types of Christians who are willing to practice self-control? a reflection of our God out of discipline, out of discipleship of Jesus Christ. The opposite of self-control is indulgence. The counterfeit of self-control, the counterfeit, the fake version of it, is sheer willpower. It is sheer discipline. You see, friends, biblical self-control is more than just balancing your checkbook and making sure you have all of the payments made and then you write your check to church and write your check to charity and X, Y, and Z. There's more going on to that than that. Biblical self-control is more than just dieting well and exercising and living an active, productive life. It's more than just avoiding vices such as violence, anger, and pornography just because you're like, yeah, Mike, I don't cuss anymore. And I don't even use the, the alternates. I have a pure mouth. That, there's, there's more to biblical self-control than that. Anyone can do those things if they're resolved. Anyone, Christian or non-Christian, we can just be better versions of ourselves. More disciplined, right? Better stewards in certain areas. But biblical self-control involves governing yourself because you are governed by God. Let me say that again. What biblical self-control looks like is self-governance, self-regulation over ourselves, our thoughts, our words, our emotions, our actions, and that being a reflection of God's governance over us. Jesus' lordship over us. Jesus' leading in our lives. That's what it looks like. That's what we need to see. It's not just you and I being disciplined. It's you and I living out and acting out the lordship of Jesus in our lives. Let's get practical. And I really want to just kind of unpack what this then looks like. And and we need to talk about the struggle for self-control because it is very difficult. I want to confess, I struggle with self-control on a daily basis. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus teaches on spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And uh, in that chapter, the Pharisees, they they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. That might be familiar to you guys. They say, oh my gosh, you're doing it by the power of Beelzebub, right? And then Jesus is like, you guys are ridiculous, right? How can a house divided stand, right? And he argues against that, but the, the, the whole tenure of the chapter is talking about spiritual warfare. And then Jesus gives a really interesting parable to the Pharisees about demon possession. Really interesting parable. This is what he says in Matthew 12, 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And Jesus is talking about a person who they they experience, uh, what's it called? Um, Yeah, a a demon's being cast out, right? A demon is cast out of them, and then the demon just wanders around and then goes right back into the person. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, And put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. What an odd parable. Right? 
What an interesting parable. What is Jesus talking about here? You see, he's been arguing with the Pharisees. And he says, you guys are a brood of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. And he argues against the Pharisees because they think they are clean. They think they are right with God because they're doing all of the right things. All of the right behaviors. They're tithing even down to their like mints and herbs. They take that a tenth of that. I mean, imagine taking like mint and um, thyme and saying, hey, I bought this at the store or I grew this in my farm and I'm going to take a tenth of that and give it to God. Down to the iota, down to the detail, they gave God a tenth of everything. Their moral, religious performance was without, right, without comparison. They were righteous. They were experts on self-control. They kept the law down to the very letter. Their house was ordered. Their house was clean. But Jesus says, but your hearts are still evil. Your hearts are evil. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, you can think you're casting out demons. You can think you're defeating Satan. You think you're cleaning your heart out. You think you're cleaning your house out. You think you're getting right with God because you're doing all of these things. I stopped cussing. I started giving. I stopped, you know, watching porn. I stopped getting angry. I stopped doing all of these things. And all of your behaviors seem to line up and you think, oh my gosh, my life is getting ordered. My heart is getting ordered. My relationship with God is right. You can empty it, sweep it, put it in order. But Jesus says, but that demon is going to come back with seven more spirits and leave you worse off than in the beginning. Friends, there is a self-control born of the spirit and there's a self-control born of the flesh. We see this all over the place. We've lived it in our own lives. There's a self-control born of the spirit and there's self-control born of the flesh. How do you know the difference? When it's of the spirit, you experience freedom. You experience the freedom of God. When it's of the flesh, when it's of the flesh, those demons, those sins, those idols, they come back stronger than ever before. Now, you and I, if you've ever fasted, you've experienced this. You've experienced this because you've tried to cut something out. You've tried to give something up for God. The first time I fasted was in high school. Our church did something called a 40-hour famine. Anyone do something like that? I heard at ANC it was 30-hour famine. Y'all weak sauce. Anyways, um... (laughs) So in high school, we did a 40-hour famine. We fasted, right, uh, whatever 40 hours was, Thursday night to Saturday morning, and we did a lock-in. And, and uh, Saturday morning, we broke our fast, and me and all of our friends, uh, we were so excited. We went to IHOP, and we ordered so much food. I, I, I haven't eaten that many pancakes since then. All the pancakes, scrambled eggs, bacon, sausage, things that I can eat, I gorged myself with my friends, and afterwards I threw up. Right? It was just pure gluttony. It was pure gluttony. What fasting was supposed to do was liberate me from dependence and idolatry on food. What fasting was intended to do was make me realize I need God this much more. God is my daily bread. Instead, all fasting did was make me want food more. And then when I had the opportunity to eat, seven more spirits, more powerful than before. If you've ever fasted social media... Right? For Lent, people give up social media, Instagram, Facebook, 40 days. What often happens when they come back? Seven more spirits, more powerful than before. They're on social media more than ever. Their screen time jumps up and they're loving it all over again. They didn't experience freedom. 
All they did was practice self-control out of the flesh. And afterwards, their addiction, their desire, their habits became even worse than before. Uh, a couple years ago, my wife, Elna Baker, or not my wife, Elna, my wife introduced me to a podcast called This American Life. And she heard this one episode by uh, one of the producers. Uh, her name's Elna Baker. And she had a fascinating story. I want to share a bit of her experience from that podcast. Elna was uh, severely overweight as a teen and a young adult. And then she moved to, um, to New York City to, to get into the entertainment business and, and things like that. And she decided she needed to lose weight. She decided she's going to lose weight. Two purposes, find a job and find love. Find a job and find love. So Elna took radical measures to lose weight. She dieted, she exercised, and she took medication. Right? She took medication to lose weight. And she lost 110 pounds. She lost 110 pounds. She lost so much weight that she had all of this excess skin. She had to have four surgeries. Four surgeries to remove and repair the skin from the weight loss. Elna thought that if she lost all of this weight, she would be happy. And it was interesting. Uh, she said when she first moved to New York, it took her a year and a half. Or she was looking for a job for a year and a half, and she couldn't get one. Right? As soon as she lost the weight, it just took her a couple weeks. Year and a half when she was overweight in New York, like no dates, no love, no relationships, no romance. But as soon as she lost the weight, dates all over the place. She actually just, just cuz. Um, she kept a map of New York City, and every place she kissed a guy, she pinned it. She's like, oh, Brooklyn, pin, right? Like, you know, whatever. I can't think of any other more boroughs, the five boroughs. Anyway, and so she, she like, jokes about that. She was like, it, it was so funny to her that she was, like, going out on these dates, kissing these guys, and finding, what unquote, what she was looking for. She thought that it would make her happy, but it actually made her more unhappy. And she was tormented by the fact that people accepted her merely because she lost weight. And it made it hard for her to trust people. She's like, why are people so nice to me now that I look a certain way? Why are doors and opportunities opening for me now that I look a certain way? And it really hit home to her when she started dating a guy in the building, in her building. And uh, he told her, you know, I liked you from the first moment I saw you. From the first moment I saw you. And they had, and he was referring to uh, a recent, like, building barbecue that they had. But here's the thing. Elna and that guy had been living in the same building for four years. And they had met before. In fact, she went to his apartment, knocked on his door, and asked if she could borrow a hammer. And they had a 20-minute conversation. But he doesn't remember her, but she remembers him. And that was such a trigger for her. She recalled a journal entry that she had wrote after she lost all the weight. She said, I was happy when I was overweight. I had learned not to care about what other people thought. I was carefree. I was expressive. I wasn't as insecure. She threw out all of her old pictures from age 12 to 22. 
right? Uh, so after, the, after, you know, she lost all the weight, she threw out all of her old pictures from when she was overweight. And it wasn't because she was ashamed of what she used to look like. It was because she couldn't stand how happy she used to look. Just think of that. Looking at old pictures of yourself and you think, if I just do this, if I change this about myself, I will be so good, so happy, and so right. And she was so wrong. She looks back and she's haunted and tormented by that. Friends, this is what happened. This is what happens when we try to practice self-control in the flesh alone. This is what happens when we try to perfect ourselves, control our lives, set ourselves and say, uh, this is the, I, I'm going to pursue the, the best version of myself. And we think we need to cut things away. We think we need to um, get rid of habits in our lives. We need to change the way we look, change the way we talk, change the way we are, change the way we act. And we think if we can just cut out all of these bad parts of our lives, bad parts of our personality, bad parts of our habits, then we will become good, lovable, desirable people. But it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You see, the only way to destroy idols in our lives the only way to overcome sin in our lives, the only way we can truly grow as people is to experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you see an idol and your idol is approval and acceptance and that's what you want, the way to overcome that idol isn't just like, oh, I'm going to say no to approval, no to acceptance. It doesn't happen like that. That's the empty house, the cleaned up space. A demon's going to hop right in and the idolatry is going to look a different way more powerful, just manifested, evolved. The way to get rid of that idol is to replace it with the gospel of Jesus Christ and realize in Jesus, you are fully approved. In Jesus, you are fully accepted. If your idol is power, if your idol is control, it's not just like, oh, I gotta let go and stop being OCD. I gotta stop striving for these things. And you think, you can, you can tell yourself that, you can try to change your behavior, but that's just gonna leave a void in your heart. A void in your soul and something else is going to fill it and it's going to be an iteration of power, an iteration of control. You want to get rid of that? You want to overcome it? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And you realize the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That in God and the gospel, there is a control and a sovereignty that is sound and safe for you and for your family. That's how we change. That's how we can experience the fruit of the Spirit. The way to self-control. Let me even make this more helpful and more practical. How can we practice self-control in our lives? The Apostle Paul describes his struggle for self-control in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable distinctness for the Christian. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What an Great passage. 
Paul uses this athletic sports imagery of runners, of boxers. And his point is this. He says, everyone practices self-control. Everyone exercises discipline. Everyone understands the importance of of hard work, of self-regulation and governance. Everyone wants to be a better version of themselves and pursue success. But what sets the Christian apart is our motive. What sets us apart is our motive. They want perishable wreaths. They want rewards and treasures that are in this world and for this world. But for us, we pursue a treasure that is imperishable. We pursue a gift that is incorruptible in God. You see, most people, they practice self-control out of pride. They practice self-control out of vanity, right? We just want to be better versions of ourselves. And so, um, I mean, one simple thing. um, I still do it, but I try not to do it in public. Um, I bite my nails. Any nail biters? I know, it's so, it's so embarrassing, right? Yeah, so we have nail biters. Uh, if you're a nail biter, bad habit, right? But just watch other nail biters. It's disgusting, right? <laughs> it's disgusting. And you're like, oh, ooh, right? Or another thing, if you, like a, if you like to scratch your head, like just watch other people scratching their head, and it just looks very, like, unsanitary, right? And you're like, oh, bad hygiene. That's kind of gross. And so I remember thinking, it's like, oh, I need to not... Look nasty in front of other people. It's an ugly, disgusting habit. And so out of my pride and vanity, I was like, I need to change that. Okay? Maybe you're at work and you have a reputation for being a little bit late or a little bit sloppy. And suddenly you're like, oh man, if I want to rise up in my company, if I want people to start taking me seriously, i got to dress for the job that I want. Right? i got to start taking myself seriously. And so out of pride and vanity, you're going to start changing your behavior. You're going to start showing up on time. You're going to start dressing a certain way, grooming yourself a certain way, talking a certain way, because you want people to think that you are competent and successful. There's so many ways we try to change ourselves, discipline ourselves, and it's all driven by vanity. All driven by vanity, right? I mean, why do so many of us work out so hard? Is it because you want to make sure you're healthy and live a long life for your kids and your spouse? That's a beautiful reason. For others of us, we're like, summer's a coming, right? Summer's a coming. So many of us practice self-control out of pride and vanity. Tim Keller has a great quote that I want to share with you. He says this, self-control, biblical self-control, it's not something you do for yourself. In fact, Self-control only comes when you want something more than yourself. Self-control only comes when you love something more than yourself. Love someone more than yourself. And that is the kind of self-control that comes from the Spirit of God. That is the kind of self-control that God wants for us. Not that we're so obsessed with our image, so obsessed with our success, that we're like, oh my gosh, we have to get everything right and ordered in our lives. No, it's I love God so much, I will live a new way. I love my neighbor so much, I will act a certain way. I love my family and my spouse and my children so much, I will change my behaviors. That's what love does. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ constrains us. It produces self-control in us. Anyone who's ever had 
children, you know that's what happens, right? I mean, before I had my son, Seth, I loved my life. Played golf every Monday. That was my pastor's day off. I slept full, like, you know, seven, eight hours a night. It was awesome. Now, my son wakes up every three or four hours. And I was talking to uh, my other friends. They were like, oh, yeah, I just act like I'm asleep, so my wife takes care of everything. Right? They're like, oh, I was like, you're a smart man, but that's a dangerous game. I love my wife so much, half the time I wake up, right? Half the time. Like, I, sometimes she wakes up first, I'm like, oh, yes. But other times I do it. It's not because I like waking up at 3 in the morning, prepping a bottle and feeding my son. It's love. It's love that wakes me up. Love that makes me change diapers. Love that makes me disrupt and disorient my preference and my patterns. Love controls me. Self-control only comes when you want something more than yourself. When you truly love your neighbor. When we love the poor, we'll say, hey, you know what? I won't spend $500 on myself for Black Friday. I'm going to give to people and causes that need it more. When you truly love your, your spouse and your children, you'll say, hey, I will take my health more seriously. My cholesterol count does matter. Right? No in and out double-double. I'll get a single cheeseburger. Protein style. Right? It's not because you like it that way. It's so messy like that. Right? It's because you love your wife. You love your kids, and your health matters not to you. you. You are not your own. You belong to another. That's biblical self-control. Let me share one more way to self-control. The way to do it is not to disregard or dismiss. There's a lot of us that do that. We think, you know what? I will be freed from my desire and my pursuit of the things of this world if I just say, they don't matter. They don't matter. I can just dismiss them. But you will never hear me from the pulpit tell you money doesn't matter. Money matters. You'll never hear me say family or friendships or relationships or success or, or rest or recreation doesn't matter. Those things matter. You know who says they don't matter? You know who's dismissive towards the things of this world? The Greek Stoics were. For us as Asians, you know who else is dismissive? And thinking that, that will produce self-control and freedom, Buddhism. Buddhism in the eightfold path teaches that. Buddha says, your problem is desire. Our problem is desire and the way to freedom is to rid ourselves of desire. Do not want anything. And if you rid yourself of desire, then and only then you will be free. Jesus has a better way. Jesus knows the things you need in life. He knows the things that you need. He says, I know you need money. I know your family is important. I know your friends, your job, your education. I know rest is important to you. I know you need clothes on your back and shelter over your head. I know you need these things. But what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. Love God first. Live for God and the kingdom first. And then self-control will be rightly ordered. God is not out to just take everything away from you. God wants us to live abundantly. He wants us to live lives that flourish under his provision. 
But he says, seek first my kingdom. Brothers and sisters, it is a heavy call to deny ourselves. This call to discipleship, to take up our cross daily and follow Christ, it is not simple. It is not easy and it is something that we will wrestle with and struggle with every day of our lives. But there is a reason why we can do it. There is a reason why we must do it and it is because of Jesus Christ. And how he has demonstrated the fullest expression of self-control we have ever seen on the earth. When he denied himself and went to the cross in our place. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was no masochist. He didn't enjoy the nails going through his hands. He wasn't seeking out the crown of thorns over his head. In fact, in Gethsemane, he says, Father, if there's any other way, would you take this cup from me? Yet, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Jesus first denied himself and took up his cross and he gave himself for us. And when you and I realize that, there is freedom. When you and I realize that and we accept that, we become Christians and we are invited in to follow the good life, to follow the pattern of Jesus, to believe that when we take up our crosses, when we deny ourselves and follow Jesus, that that is the good life. That there is abundance, there is joy, there is love, there's peace, there's kindness that comes from the Spirit of God as we follow Jesus Christ. There's some of you here today, you've stopped denying yourself. You know you ought to. You call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, but you're living in indulgence. You're doing whatever you want to do, going wherever you want to go, buying whatever you want to buy, and there hasn't been a moment of sacrifice and self-denial in your life. In a recent season or this past year, if that's you, let me ask you why. Why? Does Jesus say yes to every decision you make? Is that your relationship to Jesus? I think for many of us, we've, we've bought into the lie that we can have our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have Christianity and then everything this world has to offer. But brothers and sisters, the way of discipleship is the way of Christ where we deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow Jesus. What does that look like for you? What is an area of indulgence that you know God is saying, turn away? Crucify that desire in the flesh and find life in me. Follow after me. Is it your words? Is it your emotional life? Your attitude? Is it your actions? What are the things in your lives you know are displeasing and dishonoring to God? And as you identify those things, say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, help me. Lord, free me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your promise to us that we are loved with a perfect love in Jesus Christ. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that as we think upon the cross, as we look upon the cross, that we would see that it was not easy for Jesus, that it was the ultimate expression of sacrifice, self-denial, love for you and love for us. Help us to see the costly and beautiful nature of the cross. And may we be transformed. May we be ministered to. May we be convicted and moved. And Father, I pray that we would follow. Forgive us for being so comfortable living our own indulgent lives. Forgive us for trying to do discipleship on our own terms, by our own might. Help us to see, Lord, that when we surrender, God, that there is there's life. That when we die, that we can live because of your grace. Lord, call us out. Call us out of our sin. Call us out of our selfishness into the light of Jesus. We want to live for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.